Hey there, it's your boy, Timmy Clare. Um, today's episode is Norther Chat with Claire North. You may be familiar with some of her work. Um, her breakout novel in 2014 was The Fifteen Lies of Harry August. And that's not her only novel, though. So the first thing you need to know, right? So she's also published as Kate Griffin and under her real name, Catherine Webb. And the first thing you need to know is she she published her first novel at the age of 14. That was when she first got published. That was Mirror Dreams, which that's just, you know, already, <laughs> if that makes you feel inadequate, it's okay, you're only human. I mean, it makes you feel stressed, if it makes you feel old. All of those things are completely natural reactions. Uh, the second thing you need to know is that since then, she has published... 20 novels she has written and published 20 novels which is just no come on uh and um as you'll hear from this interview the worst thing to cap it all she's extraordinarily nice really entertaining very clever uh articulate funny uh and has a conscience oh gosh so we can't even hate her because uh, it's all very well-deserved and born of hard work and genuine enthusiasm. So I don't want to preempt it too much, except to say, you know, if, you, if you're if you not familiar with her work, then it, this is a great opportunity for you to listen to someone and get a, get a sense of how somebody manages to write 20 books, which, you know, is an outstanding achievement for a lifetime. But she's not even hit her mid-30s yet so my goodness but I found it very inspiring to talk to her of course I mean I know I always say gosh I've learned so much and you're just gonna have to accept that now and take that on faith that it was it was just a dream to talk to her I felt so lucky just that she was one of the authors that uh, a few of you when I did the when I did the survey you said oh we'd really love you to, to speak to Claire North and um Someone suggested it to me on Twitter and she was listening in because she'd been tagged in and said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And I found myself chatting to her and it was just so thrilling. I Look, if I ever get cynical and jaded about chatting to authors, about storytelling and writing and realising that this is my actual life and I'm getting to do something that I've wanted to do since I was five, which is make stories and be enthusiastic about stories with others, if I ever am too cool to just be like off my nut with excitement about it then you have my cheerful permission to um whack me in the face with a frying pan or a large fish whichever is at hand um because i just think it's just great and she uh I, you know we chat about we start right at the beginning and we talk about how she got into writing and we talk about a process and uh we talk a little bit about the you know genres and literary fiction and and then we dive into her latest novel 84k which uh, came out in may and is a fantastic funny dystopian sort of sf satire about a corporate dystopia that unfortunately feels uh, increasingly indistinguishable from our own society so look, that's what I'm saying to you. That's my my bit. If you, if of course, if you read her work, then, it, then you won't need any. You'll be saying, "Come on, Tim, shut up. Let me listen to her." If you 
haven't read her work, uh, you're in for a huge treat. Just to say before we start that this uh, show have no advertisers on it. It's entirely uh, supported by listeners. So if you get value out of the podcast, if you enjoy it, if you feel it's worthwhile to you, then you can do a couple of things to support. First off, you can uh, buy my book, The Honours, which is uh, out, uh, published by Canongate. Uh, it's a novel. I think you'll really enjoy it. If you dig what I do on here, you'll probably like it. Lots of you have got in touch to say you do. So that's the first thing you can do. There'll be a link in the show notes to that. Second thing is I've got a coffee page set up. That's KO-FI. Um where a bunch of you have uh, donated. I'm so grateful for that. Thank you so much. Um, those donations just help me pay my hosting costs for my website and for keeping the show on SoundCloud. Uh, and it just allows me to do interviews like this one uh, without running out of money to feed my child and keep the lights on. So thank you very much. And if you want to just drop me a couple of bucks, again, there's a link in the show notes and there's a link on my website, timclapper.co.uk. You can go on there and just uh, drop me a few squids. Thank you very much. It's so appreciated to all of you who've done that already. Genuinely, genuinely blows my mind. A final thing is, uh, as a non-monetary way you can support the podcast, just uh, subscribe to us on SoundCloud, subscribe to us on itunes and uh, rate and review the show and share it on social media every time you do that that's the only way people find out about it you know i've done the survey now so i know uh, one of the questions was how did you find out about the show and i've got to tell you 90 percent of the people found out because they were recommended by a friend so if you enjoy this podcast and you have other writers in your life or you just have twitter account or facebook and you don't mind sharing episodes um now and then it makes a huge difference and it gets the word out to other people who might get a little bit out of this as well maybe writers who are struggling or just need a little pat on the back a little bit of a peer group around them we're building a community here guys um so that's i'm going to shut up now i just enjoy talking to you it's nice um this is my interview with uh catherine webb i really hope you enjoy it <laughs> um cool so are, are you um ready to go cool so what i'll do as usual is i do a, a, a little intro for the show and i normally leave a little bit of studio chatter in to make it seem uh sort of more uh chilled out and uh relaxed and, and not too slick not that there's any danger of anyone being feeling that the show is overly produced or too slick and then i'll just uh go in and introduce you cool thanks oh, oh oh i've forgotten the last thing i should ask is what do you want me to because you've got different pseudonyms oh, yeah, that you publish under what would you like crisis. yeah what would you like me to call um, you during the show i'm probably cat i mean i'm professionally okay. claire but i'm more likely to respond to cat cool okay well i'll i'll call you uh i'll i'll, I'll say you can if you want to say, you know, that you you publish as Claire North, but I'll call you Cat during the show. If that's all right with you, if that's what you perfect most like, we'll do that. Okay, brilliant. Uh, okay, so hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Claire. I'm the host of the show, and I'm also a writer, and I'm also, I hope, becoming your friend. But I'm not alone today because I have uh, the author Claire North on the show today uh who is gonna talk well we're gonna talk about all sorts of things i have as usual a, a plethora of uh, questions uh some 
to do with craft, some to do with story, some just to do with my own nerdy enthusiasm about uh, her writing. Um, but she's published under uh, s- several uh, names, and so um, I'm going to be uh, addressing her by her uh, real name, which is Kat. Hello, Kat, Hello. how are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, yeah, sorry, I realise that intro is always like a little bit, it's a bit much, isn't it? It, it <laughs> suddenly transforms into a, a bit of a... A bit, a bit of a blabber mouth. Um, well, I mean, given how much of my life I've spent going, I'm Cat, but I'm Claire, but I'm Kate, but oh, uh, I thought it was fine. I thought it was graceful. Thank you. That is really kind of you. Um, it's so nice to have you on the show, and sort of, I want to get the most out of our time. I'd like to just uh, sort of unceremoniously dive straight into it, if it's all the same to you. So, I want to say that you have a pretty exceptional amazing sort of journey into writing uh and i want to ask sort of for people who don't know like uh where did it all begin for you um it probably all began in the library i think most writers begin in the library or reading a book but it began in the library when i was about 14 years old and I was an only child and I spent my summer holidays reading books by myself because friends are scary and got to the bottom of the fantasy shelf, went from Douglas Adams to Roger Zelazny, which is a great way to do it, got to the bottom and realised that there was nothing left and that the library was closing and that I was alone without any books. And so I started writing, obviously, because what else are you going to do on a summer holiday when you're 14? Um, And I've been writing ever since. So my first book deal was signed when I was 14 years old, um, like a freak. Freak is the nice word for it, apparently. Um, And I've been writing novels ever since. That's, I mean, like, I I know, of course, like, there's going to be listeners who are going... Oh my goodness, I feel terribly threatened by the fact you had your first book. But on the other hand, it's incredibly inspiring. What books did you love back then? Um, There was a lot of Terry Pratchett, um, who was and is one of my greatest heroes. Uh, There was a lot of Zelazny. There was a lot of Anne McCaffrey, although kind of stopped after all the Weirs of Pern, because you do. Um, Hmm. There was Raymond Chandler, lots of Neil Gaiman, kind of that was kicking up at that time. I started reading Sandman when I was about 15 years old, which got me into graphic novels. Um, What else? It was all the fantasy SF. There was a lot of Douglas Adams. I started getting to Ian N. Banks and the culture novels. Mm. I want to live in the culture so much. yeah, kind of lots of lots of high fantasy and lots of SF. Yeah, I feel like Roger Zelazny is uh, read is not read that much uh, now, and it feels a bit. I I don't I meet so few people who've read him, and it really surprises me. I'm just on the last book of um, the Chronicles of Amber, and I I'm kind of I'm kind of enjoying it on its own terms, but it's a he's a kind of guy who doesn't. I feel like it, is that is that just me? Am I just surrounded by people who don't know that he? No, in- no one's heard of him. It's not just you. I am a one-woman evangelist for Roger Zelazny, and I'm partly there because I think his ideas are huge. The Chronicles of Amber. He literally sets himself up with the premise of what can I do? Hmm, anything that can be imagined. And you're like, wow, congratulations <laughs> for pulling that off. But the way he writes it as well is just so beautiful. The language is beautiful in the way it pulls you in. And he's got this beautiful art of managing to write these characters who will sit down together and have a conversation that basically goes, so we should probably kill each other now. 
the world's going to end. Another whiskey? And manages to <laughs> make these giant, big geopolitical conflicts into who's got the whiskey, who's got a cigarette, should we talk about this like adults, we're still going to have to kill each other, but in this hugely human, not exactly chilled out, but very personal way. And he's also, I mean... Uh, in the, I guess this is a positive or negative depending on how you feel about it. He does have a love for, he has a weakness for in jokes and puns that occasionally, uh, you re- you know, I've, I've noticed in the Chronicles of Amber, like the main character bumps into a a guy called Roger who's downstairs who is writing a uh, romantic. A philosoph- philosophical fantasy and the characters how's it gonna end and Roger's like I don't know I suspect everyone might die and then kind of moves on and you're like hey come on now yeah he's he he breaks through and he breaks a lot of rules but he does it with such kind of gentle craft like there's, there's a knowingness about it which Terry Pratchett also did actually both of them have this knowing way of every now and then puncturing the fourth wall with a, a nudge and a wink but also such confidence that you just sort of forgive it it comes it goes you're like that's so fluidly done and with such mastery no sense of insecurity about it whatsoever you're like yeah go on you can get away with it yeah I think you're I think you're right I mean they're both very uh charming and entertaining writers and I, it doesn't feel self-indulgent to me because I feel like they are most they're really keen on putting on a good show like Roger Zelazny has sword fights underwater on horseback you know uh, yeah. it, it, there's, uh, and, and Terry Pratchett is just like on every page there are ideas that are there just because they're entertaining yeah. and, he, and he doesn't need to serve the story he's just like have this have this little toy in your mind. I'm going to give you this aside of something that's happening in the world because it excites me. And I think that always it makes, I don't know, I, lo- I love it. I'm totally on board. I think it's, it's kind of a gift to the power of the word entertaining, isn't it? Because it's very easy to read a lot of worthy tomes and be like, ah, yes, my mind was broadened. But there's a certain beauty in just fun. Fun can also carry so many ideas that you don't even realise you've caught because you're having such a great time as you read them. And Terry Pratchett is the master of big ideas caught up in a farting joke. Like, it's, it's <laughs> fun as a way of conveying all of that should never be dissed. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's really, really true. And people have got to be reading something. You've got to get their attention before you can convey your big ideas, right? You've got to have them entertained so they're reading it. Yeah, otherwise you could just be writing a newspaper article. Could you talk a little bit about um, the like your first? Not what were you writing at? You know when you started and and uh, what were uh, what was? Because uh, I'm, I'm I want to sort of track. I don't I don't know if it, I mean it, you cover a really broad range, but so I don't want to sort of preempt by saying. And of course it's changed. It has, but then everyone's has. But how can you talk about what you were writing then at fourteen? Um, I was writing, I guess you'd call it high fantasy. I'm a little bit cautious because I got eight out of ten on a quiz of one of my own books once. And <laughs> I just, I can see myself doing even worse as I cast my mind back to the dark ages. Um, you know, the, the era of puberty. Um, but I was writing, um, high fantasy. It was 
a slightly alternative world. It was set in the world that we create when we dream. So we fall asleep, we have our dreams, and sometimes we remember glimpses of them, but the part we can't necessarily remember that clearly is this whole other universe created by our dreams, um, with kingdoms and constant wars between dreams and nightmares, and kind of everything you can dream would pop into existence in a place and then be moulded and shaped by the independent kind of people and lives to live within this dreamscape who when they sleep dream of us and so it was this sort of mutually mutual feedback ah oh, getting six out of ten on this a, a mutual <laughs> feedback of kind of creating each other's worlds um and there was two books it was mirror dreams and mirror wakes um yeah that's, that's, that's basically what i can remember i would yeah. really do badly on a quiz on this now but it was high fantasy wizards stuff blew up i had a great time See, this is the thing is, I, I get so many letters from people who talk about, who are writing as adults and really struggle with you know, self-criticism and doubting themselves and procrastination. And so do you think, how, I mean, it, I know you can't like A-B test your own life, so you don't know what it would have been like if you'd started, you know, um, much later in life actually writing novels. But how do you think it's been helpful to have started so early did you suffer with self-doubt back then or um i think there's lots of aspects to that um economically it was a very good thing to start back then because i managed to pay my way through university and my parents were like thank you we'll go on holiday um <laughs> so that, like there were definite perks and i've had a nice long trot to kind of get into the industry and it's only taken 16 years so that there, there, there were definite perks to kind of having that base ground laid in terms of doubt and anxiety i've always i think again it falls into two parts i've always written for myself i write what i love and i do it again because i i really enjoy writing and i think the best writing is the one that you enjoy doing sometimes you come under pressures to write the next jk rowling or the next twilight or whatever it is and you can see it in publishing even just looking at book titles you can see where everything went through that kind of phase of you know the many things of something or the girl looking at the thing or the boy looking yeah. at the thing or the girl on the what set and now we're kind of going in i think in science fiction to a phase of the ship who went to a place the planet that is a thing there's a there, there are fashions and as a writer I think you can feel yourself under pressure to conform to that but as a reader when you read those books you can kind of feel the slog you can feel that someone's not quite into it it's the opposite of Terry Pratchett's Lasney there's this slight unease about what's being done and it comes across I think when you read it so I've always written what I've loved and as a result it's not really been a question of self-doubt because other people may not love what I love and that's their problem like that's it's it's always been for me um but that said as a writer I'm in a slightly privileged but I'm a very privileged I'm a massively spoiled writer but I am in a unusual privileged position of having been able to look back at my books changing over the last 16 years against the benchmark of how my life has also changed monumentally in that time I'm 32 now and I've been through you know GCSEs, A level, university. You know bad breakups, true love, the whole Shazam, council tax. You know trying to get a job, discovering sexism, the whole Shazam. Like, and I can look back at my writing and see it changes. I have, and because I've changed so much, I look back and I don't necessarily see my old books as bad books. I don't see them as things that I dislike. I wouldn't 
write them now, I wouldn't probably read them now, but I can see them as who I was then. And that's not something to be embarrassed or ashamed of. It's not who I am now, but it was true to something in the past. And I think that's a a healthier, albeit longer road to get to than the kind of the instinctive thing of, oh God, everything I've done is terrible. It's not terrible. It's who you were then and who you are now is someone different. That's really, I'm so glad you've said that. Thank you. Because I hear so many people, you know, very amusingly talk about the kind of toe curling thing that they wrote when they were a teenager. And part of me feels a little bit like they throw the hard-working, kind of brave, uh, sort of plucky, self-starting teenager that they were, who said, you know what, I'm going to do this because I want to, and I'm going to actually, did something that a lot of adults would be terrified to do, and they, and they go, and they're, you know, it's like, kind of like punching down, right? They're going, look at this idiot teenager who went, I'm going to tell a story because I care about myself and I'm excited. And I think it's wonderful that you look at your stuff and you feel like, yeah, this is, well, well done me. And I've created (laughs) these worlds because it is cool, right? It's really cool. Yeah, it is. And also, I think to be a teenager and to find something you love, you can go your entire life without finding something you love. You could spend your entire existence, you know, working down McDonald's, desperately trying to find that thing that brings you joy. I think, yeah, you might not necessarily be pleased with the results 20 years later but you loved it and that counts for so much I think and is never to be sniffed at yeah I think that's really that's really oh that's made that's really touched me actually it's lovely um so I want to sort of jump uh forward a bit because I think the uh like a big breakout that lots of uh people will sort of know you from or first maybe first encountered your writing um is your novel the first 15 lives of Harry August and I was uh that's kind of a big I know that that elides so much of your career I don't mean to dismiss what came up to that and if we want we can jump back in a bit bit and sort of you can mention that but um uh for people who haven't read it can you give us a a little summary because that was the I'm thinking I'm right in saying that's the first one you published as Claire North yeah that's right um and it, it was, you're right, it was the one that kind of went from being a bit like pootling along, minding your business, to like, whoa! Um, so, The First 15 Lives of Harry August is the story of a man who is born in 1918, he lives his entire life, he dies kind of 1980s, 1990s, and then he's born again. But he's born again as himself, back in 1918. And no matter what he does, his life just keeps on resetting back to that moment all the time doesn't matter when he dies doesn't matter how he dies he's always reborn as himself and he has to go through it being a child again and through being a young adult again and being old again on this perpetual loop throughout the 20th century um and it's the story of how he lives with that and all the mistakes he makes with that and what he changes with that yeah it's um it's quite a uh it's do you think like because I like I see it as as I do you see it as science fiction or fantasy? This is like a, a, a the kind of vexed genre question yeah. that a few authors care about and actually a lot of readers do not care about at all. I realise that, but um, even so, like, do you what genre do you see it as being? Oh, it's a complicated mess, isn't it? I think it's science fiction, but that's because I'm proud to be a science fiction writer. I'm a proper geek, and I think that. 
the temptation with genre is not to use it for its proper purpose, which is to help you find more books similar to the last book you loved. But the temptation with genre is to use it to define the books that you will not read and that you will not try. And genre can become this badge that we wear, kind of going, well, I don't read romance because I'm not soppy. You're like, come on, don't give me that. And it's become this slightly snobby tool sometimes I think that we use to kind of express who we are by what we read I read thrillers therefore I like adventure and action or I read crime therefore I have a darkness inside we wear the books we read as a badge on our sleeves and in doing so I think there's sometimes a temptation to dismiss the books that we don't read as somehow lesser because the books we read are part of the image of who we are that we project and so science fiction has this projected image of nerds and geeks sitting in a corner with very pale skin who've never seen the sun kind of talking about their Dungeons and Dragons game and not getting a life and sometimes that is true I don't know what sunlight is but that's because I also work in theatre but the rest of the time you're just like this is a massively dismissive reductive way to approach books and it serves no one's purposes save to make us feel better about what we read and use that as a tool for our aggrandizement so sorry that turned into a massive rant i get no massive rants are what we're all about that's great i just i i I find it horrifying that books which are the single most empathetic empowering tool for engaging humanity that we have can sometimes be used to reduce other people by what they read you're like ah you've missed the point of words (laughs) Um, so I regard myself as a science fiction writer because I'm proud of my genre and I I love that identity and I I think that we should all get over ourselves, frankly. However, my publisher informs me that I am definitely a writer of literature. Um, And that does tie into why I have a pseudonym. I have a pseudonym to try and pretend that I've never written about wizards before. Um, But it also ties into that thing of, you know, newspapers, academics, there is still this kind of idea that science fiction is not as worthy or as interesting as literature and therefore will get less mainstream attention. And so I'm sold as literature, even though I'm blatantly science fiction. It's the same boat that Margaret Atwood and David Mitchell and, you know, George Orwell with 1984 all get lumped into that kind of speculative fiction. You're like, it's not speculative fiction, it's science fiction, but it's science fiction with a pastel cover. I mean, that is a pretty amazing boat to find yourself on a voyage in, right? Like they, they, those 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 three people. If you're stuck in, if you're if your company are like, oh well, you know, like Margaret Atwood, Margaret Atwood, uh, George Orwell, and David Mitchell, you're doing all right. I it's think. amazing company, but it is company that leaves you kind of sat in a corner, going, "I will never be as good." <laughs> oh well, next. But I mean, I guess you've got a different uh, attitude. I to it than because margaret atwood has said you know she doesn't like the label for her own work as science fiction she doesn't regard it as science fiction whereas you because you you know you you but you do identify with that so i it's not always i don't think it's always like an external uh group and of course as nerds sometimes we've been guilty of you know i think uh, nerds and geeks often have through kind of like having their own views be not in the mainstream have sometimes become a little bit insular themselves so sometimes yeah. you know i think there's i think there's a little bit of back and forth where you and you don't always realize how how kind of like insular the scene can be 
seem from the outside where people get scared away. They think it's not for them because they go to a, you know, game store or they go to a con and there are just like l- loads of blokes who can sometimes be a bit sexist, uh, you know, can, you know, th- so I think it's not always been a welcoming scene. It's been, you know, a, a kind of like a scene that's, I'm sorry, I'm going on my own rant here. No, it's no, not, no, I it's not about your agree. book at all, but I think sometimes, you know, science fiction is doing better now. But yeah. it's got its own kind of like reaching out to do to kind of like link hands with those people across the divide. I completely agree. And I think that actually there's two conversations to be had there. There's a conversation about publishing and how publishing and also to a certain extent how the algorithms that define our internet buying now when we go online and order books, how those present science fiction. Because currently I feel there still is a bit of a wall in terms of how it's marketed and how it's presented that might discourage people from even trying it. So I think there's that part of it. But also I agree that we're quite an insular community and actually even within our own community, we can get quite destructive like the the only example that keeps leaping to my mind is with the recent star wars movies and the number of people going that's not canon and there is this kind of relentless drumbeat of what is canon and is it okay for women to be people that keeps on banging on and you're like that's not again a reflection on the stories being told or on the potential of what the story could be that's a reflection on us wanting to own something something that's ours and gives us power and confidence and strength and no one wants that to be challenged yeah I, well it's uh, it's yeah it's i think you're absolutely right i i just 100 percent agree i don't have anything to add to that i want to just say uh but with this story so because I, I guess like bringing it back to this novel you did you find because it, I do agree with you that like it's kind of your it, it definitely was placed uh more as a kind of general or literary fiction it was marketed in that way rather than science fiction and I, I must admit like for me as a reader I'm reading it and I am really excited about like the concepts and uh the names and you know there's like secret organizations and there's someone who's coming back to life and there's the the whole thought experiment of that where you start going well what would I do with that time and how would I deal with this and what does that allow you to do and how can you exploit that so there's all my kind of nerd brain going off but of course I care about Harry as well as a character and I care about 20th century history and how that is woven into it and how we see these things again and again and you know the the tension between like a kind of fatalism, like one person against the flow of history versus how much actual power we have in our individual life. So there's all that. And I wonder how you, I'm saying this as an introduction to say, a long-winded way of saying, you know, have you encountered the kind of, oh, this book transcends the genre uh, compliment where people are going, well, it is science fiction, but actually there are characters you care about as well. And there are human beings in it. I was I was wondering how that that's played across because that's often how the literary world kind of recaptures science yeah. fiction for themselves. Yeah, I think to a certain extent, yes. Not from science fiction fans who've all just been like, "Oh, look, it's a science fiction book full of humans doing human things." A bit like all good books ever, because yeah. all good books fundamentally are about something to do with who we are and our humanity. You can't you can't read a book without engaging with humanity because you are being asked to put yourself in someone else's shoes. It's the single most humane thing you can do. So science fiction readers are just like, yeah, it's a book. 
stuff happens. Um, but it has been interesting. Mainstream literature has kind of gone, ah, but you've got this depth, you've got this this elevation of ideas. You're like, that's not unique. Loads and loads and loads of books have done this better and more than I have. Um, but I always remember last year, hilariously, I was shortlisted for a Young Writers Award on barely my 19th novel. Um, and it was me and it was four other incredibly talented young writers and we were all introduced in the room going, ah, oh, this writer's written a book about a dead historian and this writer's written a series of short stories about the drug war in Colombia and this is Claire North. She's genre. And it oh. was said in this kind of pride way. It, was, it wasn't a rejection thing. It was this kind of surprise and delight that, look, we have found someone who does genre and we have embraced that and accepted that and it's okay. And there was something kind of delightful about that, about kind of the prize organisers being so excited to have found genre and for it to be all right. But at the same time, there was a moment of being a bit like, we've been around. I've been around. It's been around. This is not a fresh discovery you are making. And while I appreciate what you are attempting to achieve, at the same time, I was a bit like, we're there. We've always been there. And looking does not change the fact that we've always been there. Yeah, I, I, it, it's, it, it's those moments where it sounds a bit like they're going, hey, you're, I always thought you and your friends were complete idiots, but uh, you're all right. And you kind yeah. of feel a bit like, and it's those kind of compliments that make you feel that maybe by accepting them, you're slightly like there's a whole gang behind you. It's, it's those ones, isn't it? That I, I think you're right. They're often said with genuine like goodwill behind them. They just kind of have that slight edge of, Oh come on, you join us. There's loads of stuff you if you like this, there's loads you're gonna love. Yeah, it does feel a bit that way. And also I must admit, as a young woman, um, even though I'm an ancient hack greying in my soul, like the, the my recent bugbear <laughs> has been the number of people I meet who go, Oh, you've written a novel, well done. And I, I I'm always like, That's incredibly kind of you, I know what you're saying, I know what you mean, but you're saying well done to me as though I haven't just told you I've written my twentieth novel and I can't quite shake the feeling that if I had been male and a little bit older, those would not have been the words that passed your lips. And it's it is this thing where you're like, How do I embrace the kind intention and the the genuine generosity that is behind this word? But at the same time, how do we also address people being numpters about books and society? and how that is tied up into their identity rather than just into the joy of reading. Yeah, I, I, th- oh, that's, that's brilliant. I think you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And so that's a really good way of us stepping into talking about 84K because, you know, the thing I was going to, you know, I was going to say is like, this is, I was going to ask, is this your 20th book? Surely it can't be. Uh, um and i'm you know i i it's not i'm I, i'm only i i'm i i'm i'm now slightly nervous about sounding astonished because i don't want to sound like i'm being patronizing but it's an inc- <laughs> but it is an incre- it is an incredible achievement i just think you're right that sometimes that is gendered and if you perhaps you know like male writers get seen as kind of like a seasoned pro whereas their uh, female writers are maybe ones that are a bit younger people react like oh my goodness wow how did you do that? And I expect the answer is loads of bloody hard work and turning up <laughs> since I was a teenager and caring about writing and commitment to my craft. Um, but rather than preempt all those questions and answer them for you, which would be even <laughs> worse, um, can you 
I'm going to, can you tell us a bit about 84K? I'm going to use this to maybe jump into some questions about craft and actually do a bit of a deeper dive. But um, what is your 20th novel uh, about and how does it start to take shape for you? 84K is the story of a man called Theo who works in the criminal audit office and his job is to audit the value of your murder. So let's say someone comes along and kills you, Tim Clare, personally in a fit of sexual rage. Theo will come along and go, right, well, murder, that's £30,000. Sexual rage, extra £15,000. Comedian, poet, podcaster, writer, educates people. Mm, that's, that's all quite impressive. But still only a writer, isn't he? So let's call it £20,000. And we'll assess the value of your life. And from that sum, if your murderer can pay it, they'll get off scot-free. So if they can pay the value of the crime, they're fine. If they can't pay, they're going to prison forever. And everything has been privatised. So it's HMP Pentonville by Superdrug and, you know, Wandsworth Prison by Sports Direct. And you'll spend the rest of your life on the patty line, which is a kind of generic term for the prisons where you make the hamburgers or the shoes um and it's a story of what goes wrong in theo's life when he finally grows a conscience essentially oh that's a really horrible it's like you're going to be fine in this society as long as you don't care <laughs> yeah so can i ask i mean i i've got some some guesses about where the genesis of this story might be but um where did this story how did this story start to take shape for you? When did it go from being some vague ideas into an actual, oh, this is going to be, might be a story? Um, I've been getting quite angry about the world quite a lot recently. And I think certainly in 2016, when Brexit happened and Trump happened, there was that moment when myself and all my fluffy, humour-seating, lefty, liberal-class Londoners kind of all sat up and went, oh, the world that we thought we lived in is not in fact true and we we'd taken it for granted we all live in our little echo chambers and my little echo chamber had gone you know multiculturalism acceptance tolerance you know expansion of ideas or all, all the fluffy tropes that you'd imagine that we shroud ourselves in we did and then there was that moment where you woke up and realized that wasn't true and not only was it not true but that all around you are people in ridiculous amounts of pain. Like, the country is in pain. A huge way that the world's in pain. We don't really know what we're doing with ourselves right now. And it's easy to dismiss other people's pain as being stupid or whatever or meaningless. But as a writer, you're not allowed to. You have to understand where that comes from. And so for the last few books, I've been poking as delicately as I dare at where we're going, how we're getting there... And what it feels like to be within that, how it feels to live within the future that it feels we might be heading towards. And again, as a science fiction fan, I grew up thinking the future will be Star Trek, phasers, transporter, nip off to Mars for a holiday. And now I'm increasingly worried it might be Mad Max. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'd say there's like a lot of intense moods in this book. Like it's at uh, turns... Uh, like depressing but also very angry but also often like darkly funny and, and there's and even that but with all that there's also life breaking through everywhere in the kind of cracks in this system so even in the bleakness there's that's kind of part of the pain of the book actually is that there are like these little shoots of humanity that's why because there's that's why there's stakes 
what were you hoping to make the reader feel when they read this? I think this is going to sound really pretentious, but it's the Good. best I can muster. I think that there's something about the strangeness of the ordinary that I think is fascinating because we live our lives and our lives don't necessarily feel spectacular or amazing. I mean, yours might feel spectacular, amazing. Mine feels just like the life I'm living. It feels like wake up, do work, go to sleep. It doesn't, our personal stories don't feel amazing. But to people looking in, they can often seem that way. And there's something very strange about what our ordinary existences are. If you talk to almost anyone in the street, if you talk to anyone you meet and ask enough questions, you'll find some quirk in their life that to you feels strange and to them feels ordinary. And I think the same thing can be said about the world we're living in now. It feels like we are almost immune to shocks that should be out of this world. You know, if if we were told that the President of the United States had dropped a nuclear bomb on Belgium because he didn't like waffles we might raise a slight eyebrow but that's about as much as we go because the strange feels ordinary and with 84k I kind of wanted to try and poke particularly in the way it's written at the idea of obscene things of vile things of a society that has gone to piss but captured in ordinariness in just daily lives lived in a normal way and again I think that's important because a lot of the time, particularly in science fiction and fantasy, we celebrate the extraordinary. We celebrate heroic heroes going off with a sword and hitting things. And we can sometimes forget that just our daily lives and the act of living together as a collective society is also extraordinary, but feels ordinary. And is also remarkable, but feels just like the way it is. It's like, I, I always think of, I mean, I, I, it's like waking the reader up. I always feel like, you know, reading... I tell you, I'll tell you the bit, actually, Kat, that I was, when I was reading this that gave me... that made me feel like that kind of, like, sick chill in my heart was there's this bit... Um, I'm going to do the... If you don't mind, I'm going to do the incredible faux pas of reading a line out of your own book back at you. Um, I'm not <laughs> intending to explain your own work uh, to you. I'm just my own reaction as an end user. Um... <laughs> But I, there's this moment where Theo says, it says, this isn't new, mused Theo. Everyone knows how the system works. Everyone knows that's just how things are. The company makes a profit to keep things efficient. It's better that business profits than, than stopped himself. Couldn't even remember the words he was supposed to say. That supposed to is just... I was like, it hit me like a sledgehammer. And because it was so, it was, even in this world that's completely made up, it was kind of too real. I felt like I've heard other people do that. And I felt I've done that myself. Have these kind of like glib, unexamined uh, explanations that kind of skirt over a lot of horror in the world. As long as I'm not challenged on them or don't follow the thought to the end. Because as soon as you do, you go, what? Why do we th- think this is okay again? Yeah, that, I'm, I'm honoured, to be honest. Um, but thank you. I think um, that is kind of almost the essence of what it feels is scary in this world right now, that somehow it's acceptable to dehumanise people and to treat people badly, and somehow it's acceptable that schools are being gutted and that our old people are in constant pain and that, 
you know, it's okay to discriminate against people based on their skin colour, that somehow this has become normal and somehow we have accepted that it's okay for the rich to get richer and the poor to become poorer. And it's very hard when you live through a period of history to point at the one thing and say that's what made it happen. It sneaks up on you, this normalisation of things that... 20 years ago you'd just be laughing at and don't make any sense and it doesn't make sense but a bit like breaking out of a bad relationship if you get stuck into it for so long there comes a point where to end it kind of raises the question of your complicity how long were you in this bad relationship for and why didn't you end it sooner and the longer you stay in it the harder it comes to break out of it because to break out of it implies that you were wrong for a long, long time. And if society hates anything more right now than, well, poor people or immigrants, it hates being wrong. Yeah, I. that's, that's so... It makes me think of, I don't know if you've read uh, When Prophecy Fails by Leon Festinger, where this psychologist like infiltrated a UFO cult that were planning the end of the world. Well, oh my God, the I need end to of, read this book. They, they, they're predicting the end of the world. They've had like a message from uh, aliens that say the world's going to end on December the 21st. And they put an advert in the paper saying the world was going to end. And Leon Festinger goes, he was the guy who came up with the theory of cognitive dissonance. And he basically was gambling that the world wasn't going to end and wanted to see how human beings react when a prophecy that they believe in and have publicly stated doesn't happen. And it is hilarious and fascinating. And of course, what happens is the world doesn't end and they double down on what it and start proselytizing and become more committed to their cause uh which is terrifying <laughs> yeah and very very human very human but also petrifying so i wanted to i wanted to ask a bit about like do you 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 you, you put out 20 books which is just it's so cool and um makes me want to you know as, as someone who is both older than you and has written far less than 20, 20 books, makes it gives me a lot of hope, actually, that, like, you know, this is something that if we enjoy and we kind of put our work into, we can do. I want to ask, do you have a... I am basically now trying to, like, shake you down for the secret. You go, well, this is how I do it, and it's actually very easy. I just press a button and the book <laughs> is created. Do you have a writing routine? And has it... Has what you do to approach books changed over the years? Um, yes and no. Um, first part routine I don't really have a routine um, what I have is a day job as a lighting designer which actually is more like a, a night job I go out and I light gigs in the evening kind of once or twice a week sometimes more sometimes less um, and I used to work in theatre as a lighting designer so once every six weeks I'd go and lock myself in a darkened room and play with lights and as a result I've never had a routine because that job is very bitty and you can't quite predict when stuff is going to happen or how long it's going to take or how intensive it's going to be and actually I think that's personally helped me a lot every writer writes in a different way I find it really good to have something that forces me to step away from what I'm doing for a week maybe a few days just so I can get a different part of my brain working I also find it incredibly useful to have something that forces me to step away and remember that what I'm doing is not the be-all and the end-all of my life. So one of the great things about theatre is I have sat in technical rehearsals and as the lighting designer no one 
gives two monkeys about you. You are utterly irrelevant. They only notice you if something goes terribly, terribly wrong. And even then, they're a bit like, why are the lights failing me? And you're like, well, hello, <laughs> I'm, I'm your lighting designer. I am the human being behind the technical error you just witnessed. Um, and so I think that's actually quite a healthy thing, because as a writer, it's very easy to get caught up in the idea that what you do is hugely important because it's just you it's just your life and to you it is hugely important but the rest of the world doesn't care and i've sat in so many rehearsal rooms where the director has cried or shouted or behaved unspeakably badly to either cast or crew mostly to crew because what they're doing is the most important thing and that justifies terrible behavior and nothing justifies terrible terrible behavior and what you're doing is not a cure for cancer it's a play or it's a book and yes these things might improve the world around you yes you might have something interesting to say yes you might bring joy to someone's face and that's all wonderful but it's still not worth being a monster over and so it's been really useful for me to have that second job and something else that keeps a different part of my brain occupied but also i think reminds me to not be a twat you don't mind me saying that. <laughs> no, I don't, don't mind you saying that at all. Don't be a twat. Um, <laughs> so that's my way of working, which is really unhelpful for the universe at large, but works for me. The swing <laughs> of that is that I did accidentally suffer from clinical exhaustion at the start of 2018. Oops. Um, and that was a combination of writing a lot and I was not just writing books I was doing a thing that tied in with Black Mirror and I was doing quite a lot of film stuff Um, and I was also working for the Green Party over the general election um, which was an experience that taught me that the thick of it is a docudrama about wonderful passionate people doing their best in a difficult world (laughs) Um, and so I I was just doing too much of too much and as a freelancer it can be very hard to stop Because if you're not working, and if you're not writing, what are you actually doing with yourself? Is it okay to be sitting with your feet up in the sun? If only you are motivating you, if it's only you you have to answer to, it's actually very easy to get caught in this trap of must spend every hour labouring. It's very easy to be sucked into this deception that that's what gives you validity other careers there's a job ladder there's a set salary these things validate you but in writing reviews don't validate you because there's as many bad as there are good and money doesn't validate you because there isn't any and so you validate yourself and it's very easy for that to turn into working too much and trying too hard because that's how you feel better and so I was certainly caught in that trap and I think actually a lot of women find themselves caught in that trap too because average for a woman is not quite as good as superbly brilliant all the time. I've seen a lot of women who feel they need to excel in every possible way in order to just be acceptable. I think a lot of people find themselves caught in that trap. Do you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do you think your experience of freelancing and, you know, at times deriving kind of like a lot of, you know, your your self-esteem and personal value from... Your, essentially your labour um, do you think any of that like fed into a, a, the world of 84k because it seems you know it, it, I, I'm I'm sort of drawing uh, uh, parallels that, that perhaps not but do you think that your experience of, of freelancing is sort of fed into that world where the moment you stop producing 
you will be you will be replaced you know your value in the system is the capital or the uh value to shareholders that you create i hadn't thought of it that way but you're probably right damn it it's i never really write a book thinking about how it relates to me until afterwards when someone points out how it relates to me and i'm like oh no i didn't realize (laughs) done Um, it again (laughs) yeah i think you're probably bang on the money i was going to say that it probably relates more strongly to a previous book which was the sudden appearance of hope whose main character um doesn't have that she can't be remembered by people and so she constantly tries to find some way to define herself and to validate herself because no one else can do it for her and as a result she doesn't really have any kind of individual self-worth other than that she's kind of made up for herself um but yeah you might just be bang on the money with 84k i need to go away and think about that and stare at my navel for a bit and be a bit like oh it's full of fluff (laughs) can i there's i would like to ask you a couple of things about craft now because there's sections in 84k there's some you know uh you know fragmented uh bits where you the the prose uh breaks up to reflect this uh kind of flawed uh recall and slightly fragmentary uh nature of the actual processes that are going on i was wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about what you've tried to do with style in in the book and 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 whether that came at the beginning or whether that's something whether you whether style's something that you do in kind of like a second pass or i know that is an incredibly generic overview of style is is style a, a style do you add it at the beginning or the end but that is yeah that is basically what i'm asking sorry no that's cool um 84K has not as many sentences as my editor would have liked. Um, <laughs> so, so much so that I'm thinking of just getting the t-shirt that reads, Grammar is for losers! <laughs> um, and seeing if it makes her cry, although I love my editor. Um, I never I never kind of go back and add things like Stalin. I'm a very kind of headlong, straightforward writer. Um, and indeed, I'll try never to look back until the entire book is written, because I think... I I can see that being one of those deadly traps where you never quite get past the last 10,000 words because you're looking for perfection. And I think that perfection, A, will never be achieved because you can never satisfy both yourself but also everyone around you. It's just impossible. I think, it's for me, it's personally easier to just write the entire thing and learn through that process. By the time I've got to the 80,000th word, I will be so much more comfortable with my world and my characters that if I then do look back... I'll be able to see with much more clarity and hear with much more clarity what's off about the first 10,000 words. And the first 10,000 words are always the hardest and always the weakest anyway, because you haven't yet got into your world, for me. Um, So style always happened from the beginning. And then there's a lot of places where the sentences just sort of... Because in real life, actually, and we all know what's... So I did a lot of that. (laughs) Because I think natural dialogue sounds nothing like dialogue on the page but more importantly we can always hear the emotional truth beneath what's being said it's this great classic british trope of someone says how are you oh i'm fine and we are all perfectly capable of hearing that underneath the words i'm fine is that immortal subtext that goes i've just been to the hospital and had my left foot cut off but i can't really complain in the grand scheme of things even i'm going to cry we can hear that emotion beneath the language and a lot of the time I think when language stops you can also hear 
the terror of what's not being said. And it's, it's something that's always kind of fascinated me about the great crimes of history. My grandmother escaped from Germany. She was a German Jew. She escaped. She was a teenager. And there was there's, there's no kind of national consensus to commit evil. No one defines themselves as evil, ever. Even the worst dictator in history has always justified themselves coming from the vilest of morally corrupt yet upright positions. They think they're doing good. And I think a lot of the most obscene acts of history have happened in that place where you go, where have your neighbours gone? Oh, they... you know... And in that place where you don't say the terrifying thing, in that silence where there's an emotional truth that we do not speak out loud, there is also an unspoken consent that we're not going to discuss this further, that we're not going to say the thing that frightens us, or the thing that is emotionally true, or the thing that is emotionally hard. But we all know it, we can hear it in that place where language stops. And that's fascinating. And I I think... Theatre has influenced that as well for me because I've lit a lot of plays. And in plays, because you have actors, you can get away with people saying, oh, did you? No, because... But by the... Well, it's the... Because the actors convey what the truth of that emotion is. And it's harder to do in books, and arguably I've screwed it up in places, but it's fascinating. Well, it it, it places... It it offers... I think it's... I think one of the nice things about it is it, it places some trust and some responsibility back on the reader... It's like it's allowing it's allowing a space for them to flow in and inhabit the text that you can't if you just give them a flat prescriptive uh, moral treatise on something. You know, it, it's inviting them to be an active participant in the making of meaning and responsibility. In like you say, it, it creates complicity. I mean, you know, it's interesting what you were saying because my my grandmother was uh, grew up in Nazi Germany as a member of the Hitler Youth and um, the guy at the end of her road, the policeman who lived at the end of her road went away to be a, to work at Auschwitz. And I, and I know this because, you know, I've had, I had a family Christmas where my dad turned to his mum and said, she was sitting in her rocking chair and said, mum, why didn't you do anything to stop the Holocaust? And I was like, you know, I, it was quite like a intense moment where all eyes went to her to go, well, how, how are you going to deal with it? And she said, the thing was, she said, this guy like came back and his hair had gone complete from raven black to completely white. And he locked himself in the attic for 10 days and then shot himself with his police pistol. And no one asked, it was in, certainly in her house, nobody asked what's happened she said the biggest question that got asked was they were on a school trip and they went past Auschwitz station and she heard somebody say why are there so many empty prams on Auschwitz station wow and they and and but she said so her answer to the question why didn't you like follow these questions up was there were bombs coming at us from out of the sky we assumed we knew who our enemies were. And, and, and that's the thing, is, is when people have got a comforting story, they often don't want to kind of like kick the tyres or knock on the walls to see if it's all just bullshit. And they are sitting on the top of a... You know, it feels like there's very little emotional incentive to go, are you participating in absolute horror? Yeah. And, 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 it's, and I think like what's so interesting about like, narratives like um, 84K is you get a character 
who just accidentally glimpses through the for whatever reason glimpses through the through the set dressing and spots something that they weren't supposed to and their immediate response is it's like when you don't you wait you find yourself waking up in the morning and you try to cling on to the dream even though you know you kind of can't there's no going back you kind of go can I go back into this dream and you can't and it's that discomfort of going from innocence sorry I've rambled a lot but like no, that's what it makes me think of what, what you're talking about is that terror of us of our, our knowing stuff and realising our own like you say our own complicity um, and it takes a lot to not want and, and it's just there's so many things around us in, especially in the attention economy that are drawing us back to sticking our heads in the sand yeah yeah, I agree. And sorry it's... for going. Sorry for going <laughs> no, off on one and going. And this is what I think because you did all, say all that. Um, I just kind of restated it in different no, words. No, it's, it's a much more fluent restatement than I could possibly have done. It's it, yeah, I agree. And I think that's what's kind of quite scary about the world. I think it's something important for books to address and to look at. I think that that is again one of the roles of culture and the role of books again is to get humans to recognize the value of other humans and that can be a scary scary thing to do and i don't think it should be a burden i don't think we should come away with guilt i think that's that's kind of the last thing you need but if it can be a thing that changes something in your heart then that is the greatest achievement that you can ever hope for really that yeah i think that's i was yeah that preempts my sort of final question that i was going to ask which was a a big one but was kind of like do you think books can affect the world and is it important for novels to tackle social issues and it's kind of bringing us round full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning with kind of like genre stuff that might be on the surface about adventure or might be on the surface funny but you know do do books have a responsibility to affect the world? I think my instinctive feeling is yes and no. Always and always yes and no. Um, I think that joy is never to be underestimated. And I don't think every writer needs to sit in a corner going, how can I tell a book about feminism or racism or sexism? I think that if you tell a book that brings joy, then you've already done a fantastic thing. But simultaneously... You don't have to tell a book about big ideas to tell a humane story. Just by telling a story in which everyone is a person, respected, full and whole, you are fighting sexism and racism and discrimination because you are embracing the validity of all flavours of human. And that doesn't have to be a big idea, that doesn't have to be a big crusade, that's just telling a good story telling it well and not being a numpty with it and that's great and that is why books are so important because they are the reminder to ourselves that everyone else is more than just a bit of optical data they are a beating heart and a soul and so by the very act of telling a story well and humanely you have achieved a magnificent thing and then as for the kind of books in the world and whether they change the world I'm always actually reminded of a thing that a director said to me he was a director who also taught in a school and recently, theatre funding and drama funding and funding for all the arts has been destroyed by our government, who I loathe in case it hasn't come across. Um, and he was saying this is a tragedy for many reasons, but mostly it's a tragedy because all these children are growing up without that space to learn the confidence in their own voice. 
and without that opportunity to be pushed to feel something more than you get in a geography class and to expand their consciousnesses beyond their own emotional state. And so all culture does that. It expands your mind beyond your own emotional state. And that is the fundamental basis of everything humanity achieves. If we didn't have that shared identity, if we didn't have a communal culture, a shared language, a shared sense that we are more than just you know, bipedal creatures with thumbs scourging for food, we would never have achieved anything. It's only by coming together with something shared that we become more than ourselves. And all of culture does that. Yeah, I absolutely. I was. I. I. I sorry. The only reason I paused was because, my, for some reason, my brain made my go-to example, uh, Gangnam Style. Hey! But but it, but I do. It does make me. It is. It was something. This phenomenon that completely transcended language barriers. I believe, like Ban Ki Moon said, that it had the power to. He did a speech in uh, at the. Um, at the UN where he said he believes that like it has a power to be a force for global peace but like the, it but even something as all right but even something as silly as or like that's not about social issues as the gangnam style dance right was something that allowed us to look around the world and see all these different humans living very different lives um and say but we all enjoy doing a horse dance right guys and bring happiness it was like a moment of communality to me anyway that's my completely awful and crass kind of like response to your deep and important uh no not at all and it's true i got asked in south africa if i knew how to dab and i was like what is this strange popular culture reference (laughs) that implies that you know there are children in south africa who can go and meet children in argentina who can meet children in china and even if they don't speak the same language they can dab and that is something that they all, all understand and all brings them together. It's a stupid something, but it's still a something that unites. And that is the only way we're going to get have a Star Trek future, frankly, through Gangnam. Cat, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've had a hoot talking to you and I feel like I've, I feel like I've learned stuff. And I just want to say thank you for um, uh, tolerating my uh, blabber mouth and for being just such a wonderful and enthusiastic and informative and articulate guest thank you so much for having me and making me sound more clever than i feel <laughs> oh, i think i think you i think you definitely uh, have, have done all the heavy lifting on on that front i maybe just make you uh feel uh feel a bit more clever by uh by by providing a stark contrast um, <laughs> <laughs> um and everyone who's listening uh well when is 84k is it out already or is it out this week or it's what? out it's out already okay so if anyone who's listening i'll put a link in the show notes um to uh 84k by claire north but you can also of course uh if you live near a bricks and mortar indie bookshop that you can get to uh then please uh, buy it through there but if not i'll put a link uh in the show notes and you can go and uh, find it there um Thanks very much to Kat for being on the show and um, anyone else who's listening. I hope you have a wonderful week. If you'd like to get in touch with me about the show, then you can go on my website, timclairpoet.co.uk. There's a little contact me tab on the right hand side and you can uh, contact me through that. Or, of course, uh, you can go on. Oh, oh, are you on Twitter? That's the other thing. Have you got a Twitter handle? that? People yes, can... I'm at Claire North 42 brilliant and i'll put that in the show notes as well but yeah anyone who wants to get in touch um do so via my website please uh share the show and subscribe on soundcloud and itunes have a wonderful week and good luck with your writing 
goodbye.